Ba-da-ba-boom-boom sound. Tony Duchesne here and welcome to episode 129 of Drinks with Tony with my guest Joshua Moore. Stay tuned as we discuss his new book, Model Citizen, as well as the super secret way he got his first big five publishing house deal. Stay tuned. As I tape this, it's the anniversary of Bukowski's death in 1994, which brings back a flood of memories. Like when my friend called me at work and said, dude, did you hear Bukowski died? And I said, who? I didn't know who Bukowski was, but he sounded really cool. So I took the train from Burlingame to San Francisco to a bookstore that was kitty corner to city lights. And I found notes of a dirty old man on the shelf. I brought it to the cashier. He held up the book and yelled to his coworker, Are we going to sell more Bukowski since he died last week? It was a joke at my expense and I wanted to hide because I didn't really, I didn't want anyone to know that I was ignorant. Now I don't use the word ignorant. I use the word learning because love, because I love finding out about new things. I don't care if everyone else knows about them first. It's still fun to learn about new things. But that's how Bukowski came into my life. He had to die. And that's when I, like every young young guy who reads Bukowski, I said, I can write. That looks easy. And my delusion was quickly squashed with the reality of what it takes to be a writer for life. Speaking of writers for life. My name is Joshua Moore, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Joshua Moore. His new memoir is called Model Citizen. Joshua, how are you? Tony Duchesne. It's nice to be talking shop with you today. I've been looking forward to nerding out with you all week. I know. It's every, <laughs> every time we get together, it's a nerd out. We just laugh. That's the thing. It's just I, especially coming with the pandemic. Like Anybody I can just giggle with, like, ah, what an antidote. Yeah, I know. Wait, how how we get out of this? Are we gonna be just like everyone's just gonna cuddle each other instantly the minute we can? How is this gonna come out? How do we get out of this? I think it's gonna be roaring twenties esque. Everyone's just gonna lose their mind. What's gonna happen? <laughs> I don't know. Do you have earbuds by any chance? We'll hold tape here. We'll be right back with Joshua Moore. <laughs> All right. And, and, and now we're back. Audio <laughs> fixed. What's up, Joshua? All right. Um, oh, do you, you know, okay. You're, so when this airs, your book will be out like that minute. So what? We'll, yeah, I know. It's, O-M-G. It's, exactly. <laughs> O-M-G-I-R-L. If you, if you get it at a bookstore. <laughs> but, um, oh, is it, but you have copies right next to you. Is that the, how did it feel getting the, um, how did it feel getting the copies? Got one right here. What? Oh my yeah. god. I mean, Tony, there's always anxiety having a memoir come out, but then yeah. they plaster your dumb mug all over the cover. Talk about like anxiety. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but if, I mean, it's what I like about what they did with the cover is it's completely dictated organically from the book's closing image. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it makes sense. I love it when there's that symbiosis or that kiss between form and content. 
Uh, and then what I like about MCD too is that, you know, the graphic designer is a part. They don't farm any of that stuff out. Like he's just a part of the editorial situation there. Um, so they really think about the story, certainly, but they also think about the artifact too, which is something I really admire about their shop. The, and this is this your is this your first book with a major publisher? Are you, are yeah. You, yeah. How, Okay, yeah, now now tell me all, my friend, because you've been on the indie side. You you Dude, were with Counterpoint in the kind of the middle, and this is this is a crazy story because I didn't try to write this book. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had a I had a memoir come out in 2016 called Sirens, and then in June of that year, I, of all absurd communications, I got a Facebook note from this woman named Daphne. Um, she's like. I read Sirens, I love it. I think it's one of the five best memoirs I've ever read. If, if there's more story, I, I wanna do your next memoir. I don't care what it's about. Um, so at first I, my, I go through like the Rolodex in my head and was like, which one of my friends is mean enough to play this joke on me? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you start to immediately think like, oh, maybe it's a Russian bot, um, but she was real. And she's cool. Um, and so we, we got together and had lunch and we talked about what the book would be like and what we would investigate. And we had a blast putting this book together. You know, in terms of like comparing it indie versus big five, um, I'm always just looking for like the big beating human heart behind it all. Um, and Daphne's great. I have nothing but praises to sing in terms of my experience with FSG, yeah. It's so funny that you would think it's a joke because that's so out of nowhere. Like that, do you th that just doesn't happen. Well, it was also like, cause it was, just, it was 2016. So Trump had just been elected. So everyone's talking about the Russians and you're sort of just like, wait a minute. And I've done, Tony, I've done so much acid. Like anything seems like it could be a trick to me. <laughs> be like, Who's messing with me today? Who's it going to be? Really? Well, you, but, you, you get Say again? You get hallucinations still a little bit from the acid? I mean, on, on good days, sure. But just in terms of like the paranoid way I kind of interact with things like this. Mm -hmm. um, but I was just glad that it turned out to be uh, earnest. And I really stand by the work we did together. It was really fun writing a book with her. Wow, that's cool. That's amazing. And, and I, did you get an FSG tattoo? Because I know you get tattoos of your publishers, right? I got a, here's my $2 radio right there. Yeah. Soft skulls there. Yeah, I do have an MCD tattoo. It's on my back though, and I don't want to cool. get me by taking my shirt off in front of you, Tony. <laughs> well, it's I, it would disrupt the whole show, and it would just it, it would add to you know it, I would spend hours with myself later just thinking about it over and over. I know again. I don't want to do that to you. <laughs> You're a good man. That's that's why it's always a pleasure to see you because you got that nobleness of not wanting to uh, you know. <laughs> Whatever we were talking you know what else, you know what else cool is really cool about what about these people too is because they bought sirens from two dollar radio oh is that how it worked so the first half of model citizen is sirens right and the second half of model citizen is model citizen and the idea was <clears throat> you know in my 30s i had these series of strokes i had three strokes in my 30s and then all of a sudden they figured out that i was born missing a whole wall in the middle of my heart and that they were going to go in there and they were going to fix, build a wall, which is like this really cool thing I didn't know that they could do. And they did it. And they said the surgery was a success. And so the story's over. So at the end of Sirens, it feel like <clears throat> there's nothing else to say here. 
But then two years after that, I had another stroke, a really serious one. The fact that like my right arm didn't work for, for three or four days and they still don't know why. Um, so that became an interesting metaphor, an interesting way in to talk about all sorts of stuff, you know, primarily addiction. This idea about someone tells you that you're fixed, but you're not, what do you do with that information? How do you still try to live a good life? How do you not give in to those impulses or those, um, those voices that want to bring out the worst in you? Like, oh, this happened to you. That's so terrible. It's not fair. <laughs> and that's when we do dumb things. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to write the second half of the book. If the first half could be argued as an addiction memoir, the second half is definitely a relapse memoir. Um, I wrote it in such a way that I'm forcing the audience to be in the thought process of a junkie day in and day out to kind of know how terrifying that is. Because I think, you know, we want to believe the people that we love, if they're alcoholic or they're, if they're on drugs, once they get clean, like they're fit. <clears throat> yeah. You know, we don't want to think about our loved ones being that vulnerable. Yeah. That, like anything could send them back out to be to being silly. And so I wanted to write a book with that put the reader inside that experience, so not only for the people who have struggled with these things directly, but hopefully it can let them know what it's like for the, the people that they love who seemingly can't get out of their own way. Maybe this brings a little bit more empathy to that side of the experience. It's so weird how we, like as humans, we crave a black and white answer. We want, we don't, what answers? What is life after death? What is this? What yeah. is that? And, um, and we'll crave it so much that we'll make up these crazy stories about it sometimes. <laughs> and, and even how you're saying about, you know, and then someone went to rehab and they're clean and it's over and everyone, right. everyone lives happily ever after. They, yeah. don't they don't understand the gray of, it's not black and white. It's, it's, it's all kind, there's, there's, there's nuances. It's different for everyone. It's complicated. And it, and it also seems as though in this, you know, every zeitgeist has its idiosyncrasies, but this particular zeitgeist seems to... <clears throat> thrive shunning the gray areas and they're almost gravitating toward like this is black this is white this is zero this is one yeah. we want to just have these two options and that's it in this book i wrote this i had a one phrase on my wall when i was putting this book together and it just said the dignity of complexity huh. like i wanted to give the characters in here and also my own characterization too the dignity of complexity. And for to me, as a novelist or as a memoirist, the dignity of complexity comes from having the courage or the brazenness to show your characters from a multitude of angles. So yeah. I'll show you my passions and I'll show you my celebrations, but I'm also gonna show you some other stuff too, some stuff that you don't wanna see. And it's, you, you compile all of that information, seeing me from all these angles, and that's where character complexity lives. So I know that I'm asking the audience to go into places that she might not want to go. I didn't want to go there too. But my yeah. job is to be as verisimilitude as I can verisimilitude be. <laughs> if I can just make some words up. Um, and that was what I was really trying to do with this project. Just to make it the more, the most warts and all experience that it could be from a character standpoint. It, I love that you, um, you talked about just now the the character, the character of Josh Moore. Um, I, how do you approach that 
when you're when you're writing a memoir because i well the reason i bring this up is because when i when i teach memoir <laughs> i i always say you're a character and you have yeah. your character arc I, I i keep going you need to separate it you're you're building something you have yeah. to world build just like a novel but right I don't... But I, the way i like to think about it with my students in terms of the um i use this kind of amateur astronomy metaphor <clears throat> or like of a planetary system right we need the planet that's actually supplying the gravity. And because there's a gravitational field, that's why the moons can actually satellite around. Without the gravity, it would just be a bunch of crazy moon doing a bunch of crazy moon stuff. So I think in, this, in um, the best memoirs always have that one part or that one component of the memoirist story that supplies the gravity. And once you know what that is, then you can kind of cherry pick and curate the meaningful moons and moons in this metaphor would be like those dollops of backstory. Yeah. Like you got to know about 1979 and I don't know about 1989 and here's 2003, but there's that present action, right? So in this book, I have my third stroke on new year's day, 2015. And then my surgery that year isn't scheduled until March 11th. So I had this two month window. And that became the present action of the sirens part of the book. Like we're really only covering too much, two months, excuse me. But within that two months, we're gonna go into all these cool moons and you're gonna hear all the war stories and you're gonna hear about all the mistakes and you're gonna learn about the people I love and the people that love me and the people that used to and don't anymore and vice versa. All the icky moral mud human stuff. Yeah. You know, like, I'm never looking for clarity in my work. Like I want to write into the moral mud. I want to make it the most like complicated, ambiguous experience that it can be. And hopefully if I do it right, I bring the reader into the mud with me because I want her to be complicit. Like I want us to be in this together. Like those are the books that really matter to me. Yeah. The books that I can hold it up to my ear and it's like a conch shell. And I can hear that one storyteller's heartbeat. Like that's the stuff that really, really excites me about putting narrative together. And, and just such an honesty about it too. Yeah. The, the true authenticity. I, I love that you describe it as moons. It's, it makes sense. And what's great is if you got too many moons, the moon's not really interesting. Yep. But if you put the moons in the right places, then they're yeah. all, then you point at the right ones. I've just, I've found over the years that that's, that's the best way to help a memoirist orient herself in the revision process because at first like we are your job is to like write it all down like you've lived a long life a bunch of crazy stuff's happened to you like write it all down <clears throat> but then in revision as your understanding of the project gets more elegant then we start to make some some cuts like which moon is actually speaking to the heart of the book to the planet of the book and those moons stay and the other ones hit the cutting room floor yeah. The other thing I did with this book, Tony, that was really helpful, I don't know if you do this too, but for the last two drafts, I edited exclusively out loud. So I read oh. this book, fuck, 100 times? Yeah. 150 times, my poor wife and kid, they're like, oh, he's off his meds again. Look, he's down in the basement talking to himself. <laughs> but I wanted this book to sound like, I think the best memoirs reflect the way that particular artist talks. Now, I've lived a very punk rock life and I wanted this book to sound like a punk rock song. Like I wanted like the guitars to be out of tune. 
I wanted the singer to be on coke. So he's speeding up and slowing down, right? I want it to be like the third week of a Bad Brains tour and you can't hear HR anymore because he's all hoarse. Like it should be the, the artifact should be a reflection of the life. Um, and so that was what I was trying to really curate in such a way that like I got my, my planet, I've got my moons, but it's all coming through this kind of like punk rock aesthetic. I love that. It's like, it, it, it makes so much sense. I always try to think of it as like DJing. The pacing for me is DJing. You know, yeah. what's, what's the next record? How, we, how are we going to bring the audience down a little bit oh. right now? How are we going to go dive right back into it? Well, what's, your, what's so cool about what you're saying, too, is it really acknowledges the fact that one of the tools that we have at our disposal that we don't often talk about is contrast. Like, there's no such thing as quiet if we've never heard it be loud. Yeah. So we want to make sure that we establish those extremes. So then when we want to kind of undulate and toggle between them, the reader can see what we're up to there. And then they keep turning the page and all of a sudden it's 3 a.m. and they're like, I couldn't put it down. Yeah. <laughs> don't you love that as a reader? Don't, oh. don't you love that experience? Yes. Yeah. Where it's just, it, that's, those are the, you know, so many books I'm ki I kind of like slog through. And I yeah. just kind of just go ahead and do it, you know, and then, and, there's just, <laughs> and then there's that one where you just like, you dive into it. And uh, yeah, I, uh, it's, it's gorgeous. Well, you know, what's what I like about the complicity, you know, this idea about like, tr like actively trying to nurture that, um, that relationship between reader and main character is that I think once they're, once they're on your side, like once you've kind of, had that camaraderie cooking for a while that's where you can start to whisper in their ears like look you're not gonna like this i didn't like this i wish i didn't do this i wish i didn't say that i wish i treated another fellow traveler with more aplomb like if i'm gonna be honest in this book and that's my job you gotta know about this stuff too right you can't just know about like look at these things i'm really proud of you also have to know about the shame cave. Yeah. I believe every, it's right in the back here. It's right at the back of my mohawk. Oh yeah, yeah. I believe everybody's got a part of their- Mine's in my bald spot. <laughs> <laughs> in your bald spot. That's a really good answer, Tony. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think that that's the stash of ignominious memories and it's not tepid ones, right? It's not like I stiffed the barista. It's like, this is stuff that 20 years later, if you think about or you conjure a certain memory, like the hair on the back of your neck still stands up. Yeah. You have a visceral reaction across that expanse of time. So like in a memoir, like you gotta, you gotta go into your shame cave and you gotta be honest about that stuff too, even if it's really fucking hard work. What, what's a trip is I, there, I think there is a lot of people that won't even touch their shame cave. They yep. just continue to live life. And, it, and it's because it's just, that, that's a dangerous place to go for most people, I think. Well, you know, it also, I think a lot of it has to do with what your motives are. Like, you know, writing for me in, this, in, in a nonfiction setting, this is about my daughter. You know, like Ava, when I had my heart surgery was only 18 months old. So if I had died on the operating table, she would have had no conscious recollection right? She would never have known that like, I was the first person to play her Jimi Hendrix on vinyl, yeah. right? Like I put her feet in the ocean for the first time. Like she had never had an ice cream cone. <laughs> so I thought we had all these cool memories and the, uh, the, the, um, 
a kind of the gloomy forecast that she might not ever know was like, I got to write this book. So I actually wrote the rough draft of Sirens in that two month window from my third stroke until my surgery. Uh, Cause I really never knew my father. Uh, my father was this kind of splendid liar who just loved artifice. Like he just wanted you to know him this way. Yeah. He was shiny and he was handsome and he was perfect. And so because I was young when he died, I didn't ever have the chance to know him as a man. And so the idea that I could pass before Ava knew me was like, oh, I'm gonna overcorrect. I didn't get to know my old man. I'm sorry, but here it comes, girl. <laughs> Here's everything, the stuff you wanna know, the stuff you don't wanna know. Like, I want you to know for your, your dad's short time here, who he authentically was. Yeah. And that's what's, you know, what's great about it is it, it, it not only goes to Ava, it kind of goes out to the, um, to the masses. It, go, it goes out and it, it adds to the mythology of everything that, you know, I, I feel like all books are kind of, of entering the mythology of our lives, you sure. know, where we have to yeah. like, uh, or entertainment essentially, but, but it goes out there and affects other people, but it's, it, it's kind of written for her. Yeah. first it seems that's pretty it, cool. it definitely it started as a love letter for sure and then you know once i survived the surgery oh my god i just ruined the book for everybody i'm sorry <laughs> i totally survived the the then the logic when i was remixing then was just like not to get careful now because i didn't think i was going to survive the surgery i didn't yeah. hedge a bet i didn't pull a punch yeah. so then when it was actually going to go out into the world it was like all right stand by it like, don't get careful. <laughs> so that uh, the uh, your near death and uh, your strokes are they they shifted your whole writing narrative. It seems. Like. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like you know, it rewires it rewires your brain a little bit. I mean, I'm very lucky. Like, I've had four strokes, and unless you ask me to do like really fast arithmetic or like check my handwriting, I really have no legacies. Like I'm like the luckiest unlucky person that you've ever met. Um, I mean, there, I, there are people in wheelchairs, there are people who can't talk, like really super debilitated, you know, from one stroke, let alone four of them. And the last two were really serious. Um, so I feel lucky in, in that sense. And I wanna kind of imbue the work with that stuff too. Cause I feel like once you hear the phrase addiction memoir or relapse memoir, you think it's gonna be this like monochromatic, like doom and gloom, you know, like maybe thumping your chest, like look how crazy I used to be, but now I'm okay. But this is a book about accountability. Yeah. Like this is a book, like I'm going through these crazy decisions that I made back in the day to figure out how I cannot fall back in those traps because the mind fuck of it all is half of me wants to fall back into those traps. Every single day I want to fall back into those traps. Luckily I haven't yet. Yeah. And you get to look at your daughter and go, ah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta stick around. But, I, mean, I think that there's just such a, um, you know, I don't have kids, but I do just, I love the idea of kids and I love yeah, how it, yeah. how it uh, you know, I've seen my friends have kids and it, and it changes them and it shifts their reality. And it's just oh, so right. wonderful. It's, it it's hard. There's no sleep, but there's no sleep. It turns you into this, like too soft to live, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, things I would have never cried about before. I'm like, Oh my God, I hope no one sees this. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but I, I also feel like we're just so lucky to be able to make art right now. I mean, you know, we could have been born into a society where we don't get to do something as bourgeois, like sit around and write stories. So I, I not only feel lucky from that standpoint, but from the art standpoint, like this is our 15 minutes to be alive. Yeah. Right? Like, there's a conversation that's been happening since Scribbles on Cave Walls. And this is our short ephemeral moment to be a part of that conversation before it's the next generation's time. And that's why I make art like my ass is on fire. You know, four strokes later, like I don't take any of this for granted. Yeah. So I just want to like, I want to wake up every day. I want to be a good dad. I want to make some art. I want to try not to get divorced again. Like that's really all I can concern myself with on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the beautiful word there is try not to because hey, there's, there's always ups and downs when you're married. Of course. You know, and it's you're just like, oh wait, I'm gonna go with these downs with this person. That's right. that's the beauty of it. And what what I love about memoir too is that it is this opportunity to see that we're not alone. You know, like there's there's so much of our our incarcerated time in our own heads can make us feel like like we're so we're the only person who's ever gone through X or Y or Z, and that's all hubris. Of course, that's not true. Yeah. But to then come to other books and be like, oh, my God, like this auteur, you know, she's dealt with something similar. And this guy over here, this cat over here, we've all doing these similar things. I love the community aspect of it. There are, there are books. And I've, I've read Jim Harrison's memoir 10 times. I'll never meet him. But like, I feel like we're friends. Yeah. And I love that. Like yeah. you're a big music guy. Did you ever listen to the record? Uh, it's mentioned in the book, um, Phil Elverum's book, uh, or record of Mount Erie. I don't think so. No. So he his his wife died. He she was a musician too, uh -huh. and um, the way that he wanted to honor her was he decided to write a record on her instruments and record it in the room that she died. Wow. And I, I'll pop you a link when we're done here. Oh, okay. uh, when you listen to this record, Tony, it's like you're sitting in that room with him and her ghost. And it's one of the most intimate pieces of art that I've ever had the pleasure to experience. It's so beautiful. And, it's, and that's the beauty of it. Because he could have went and produced it somewhere else. He could have went, okay, I'm going to compose this. And then I'm going to get, I'm going to get every, all, the, great, all the, the greatest band together to do it. <laughs> and it would have been a piece of shit. But yep. he does it on instruments he's not familiar with. And he does it in a room that's yep. um, not conducive to probably making music. No, it doesn't even sound good. Like, but that's yeah. not the point. Like yes. the thing is, it's all about the emotionality that's coming. It's all emanating from this, this existential ache. Yeah. And you, as you're listening to it, by the time the record's over, you feel like your best friends. Yeah. I mean, that's what art is firing at, at this optimal level. It's this thing where suddenly we travel across space time and we're all together. Yeah. And that's gig. Isn't it great? And it's, and it's like, I, and, you know, there's words and, and music such a different level because we don't need words. For, we, we don't, music transcends everything. Right. We don't need to know the language. Yeah. We, we can still feel the emotion. And it's just, it's just I, I always just trip out on the idea of our collective conscious and yeah. how it all kind of moves together and what affects us and what doesn't affect totally. us and what affects others. 
And it's, I'm wearing like the perfect shirt for this conversation. It's a Lars von Trier shirt, but it's in a Van Halen logo. <laughs> is that Lars? Is, is that a Lars von Trier shirt? Lars von Trier shirt. No way. They did a whole series of like band logos. Like there's one with Almodovar and an Aerosmith. Uh-huh. Or Werner Hertz dog in a Danzig. <laughs> wow. I could see you rocking a Herzog Danzig shirt. Absolutely. I'm, I, well, I, lo- I love Lars von Trier's too. What was yeah, it? Good. Says von Trier. <laughs> it's in small type. That's rad. So funny. It looks like Van Halen, the Van Halen 2 logo. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, um, I still have to watch it. What's that one four hour film of his that came out in 2014? Uh, Sometimes I sometimes I just can't watch a Lars von Trier film. I know it's just I I, I kind of if I was going to categorize my relationship with most of von Trier's work, like I think the magic happened in the nineties. Yeah, um, I think Breaking the Waves is a stunning piece of art. Um, yeah. I could tell you exactly where I was when I first saw Dancer in the Dark. Oh my god, that, that was that so movie good. affected me yes. exponentially. Yeah. It's one of those movies that you like, you immediately leave the theater and go to the nearest dive bar. And you're like, yeah. I need 12 whiskeys, please. Well, I saw it in San Francisco. Were you in San Francisco then, too? I wonder if we, we probably saw it at the same theater. What was that what was that shitty little indie movie theater right there in Polk Gulch on California? Street? Yeah, Lumiere. Lumiere, yeah. Yeah, I think that's where I saw it. Maybe we were in the same theater. <laughs> would that be crazy? How SF would that be? It's so SF. It's I love the I love the stories about SF where you're just like, oh yeah, I went and saw this band at Bottom of the Hill. It was such a great show in 1994, and people are like, I was there, right? And it could only fit like 300 people, but totally. the, but we all still dance around each other. <laughs> well, the thing that I love about San Francisco is it's this it's this small little uh, sleepy fishing village that like masquerades as a major city. Yeah. But it, it always has this incestuous thing. Like if I if I meet two p- new people, we're gonna have one friend in common, without fail. Yeah, and that's where I kind of feel like we um like as I was leaving SF about seven years ago, I felt like it was I was kind of losing that where yeah. people would just be like, you always knew someone who knew someone. It, sure. yeah, it's like you meet someone and you go, oh hey oh, do you know Phil Blank? And it's just like, oh yeah, no, I used to roll with, you know, I used to go out with him because <laughs> with him because I was I DJed at KFJC and we were tight back in the, and it's just, it's that little yeah. community. And that's the magic. I and mean, that's the magic of San Francisco is that it's like, you know, especially because I lived in the Mission District for so long and yeah. which has everything that you need, right? So if I lived at 20th and Valencia, there would be months where I would never leave the Valencia corridor because everything I needed was between 16th Street and 24th Street. Yeah, there was no any reason. kind of food I could want. I mean, yep. any sort of art that I needed to get my hands on, it was all there. The readings, you, the, there's readings the all up and down. And yeah, yeah. I used to. I used. <clears throat> it used to be my wish to live on uh, right in that area, like 22nd in Valencia. Tw- like I lived on 23rd in Alabama for a year. Oh, I like it over there. Yeah, it was. Um, and that was right by Pirate Cat Radio Cafe where I used to do drinks with Tony. So I'd just walk over. I remember. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I think the first time that I first came upon your radar was I was doing uh, a show there with Margaret Weir. Oh, was, yeah, yeah. You almost know Tony DeShane. And I goes, I know of him just from Steve. This is oh, before Jesus Jerk had come out. Yeah. And then we became, you know, dirtbag pals after that. Yeah, that was that was the San Francisco story because they go, oh, you must know Blank. Oh yeah, I know him through Blank. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. That's how we roll in San Francisco, California. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that anymore, though. I feel like it, when I go there, it doesn't feel like the same population to me. And when, and when I find my dirtbag friends, that, you know, it's like, oh, I got a relief. Or I used to be able to walk down the street and out here, hey, right. yo, Tony. Or I'd scream out, yo, Josh. Sure. And that was such a normal thing. I always feel like we're, we're comfortable with the level of gentrification that brought in our wave. And we, we are super mad at the other waves of gentrification that, that changed the wave that we came in with. I mean, cities are always moving targets. They're never yeah. staying what they are. I mean, San Francisco in 2021 is not what it was in 2011 or 2001 by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, my grandparents used to live, so my grandparents lived in Noe Valley on Douglas and uh, my great grandparents. I'm sorry, let me go back even further on 24th and Douglas. And I remember going there as a kid in the 1980s and they were disgusted that these yuppies were moving in their neighborhood because it was very working class in those years. And it's just like, don't come into our neighborhood. Don't mess up Noe Valley. And then all of a sudden the mission district's like, Noe Valley, don't come down here. the mission was an irish neighborhood before it was a primarily latinx neighborhood and now it's not even that anymore you know so like it's so interesting to to feel like it's never the city's fault like it's our fault like you like you fall in love with a version and when it's not that anymore you can either get mad about it or like you leave like those are sort of the the only options that we have at our disposal right and i and and part of me loves that about los angeles because you know, the Angelinos are very passionate about the things that have gone, that came and gone. And I get to kind of nod my head and just go, no, that sounds cute. <laughs> you know, like, that sounds like you had a good time there. And they're just right. like, you don't understand, man. And I'm like, well, it's kind of nice to be an outsider and not, yeah. you know, not have the, um, not, not be so upset that something closes oh, that's down. That's how I feel every time I go to Brooklyn and there's someone's going to get on some goddamn polemic rant about, you know, how the neighborhood's changing. I'm like, it's so great that I have zero emotional attachment here. Yeah, <laughs> I can just watch it as an objective viewer rather than in San Francisco where I'm so emotionally compromised because I love that place. Right, so right. And, and that's why I was telling you how beautiful it is when I go up there now. I don't feel, I am a, I'm always a San Franciscan. I, you know, San Franciscan is the core, but I can go up there and have a, a distanced point of view of it. Just sit at a well, cafe. I remember, I remember a novel that, um, it came out in I think 2018 called All This Life. No, I think it came out before that actually. Yeah. And it, I had an office at the time at the Writer's Grotto, which is down at South Beach at Second and Bryant. Um, so I'd be taking the, the Mission bus, the 14 from you know Mission Street around 20th down there. And because there were all those crazy construction stuff happening down there, all those those construction cranes in my sick warped artist brain, I always imagined those cranes like plucking up an artist, moving him or her out of San Francisco and taking a tech worker and replacing. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time I got to my office, I was so fucking mad about it. Yeah. It was a perfect way to write a, a kind of a, a novel about gentrification and technology industries in SF. Um, yeah. So I could really kind of harness that ire and kind of use it in a way to kind of investigate these these changes because again it's always going to change yeah we just don't like some of those changes yeah and and we also need to get out of the way yeah it's you know what i'm learning as i get older because you know people make you know they're like oh millennials and they stick their fists in the air and i'm like i want to learn i learning i'm learning from some of them you know i want to they're 
they're the it, it's kind of like we're we're the captains we're the kind of the captains now we're over here let them do their thing so we can learn from them sure in, a, in an interesting way and it's all i mean that, that's where the the hip art's always coming from you know yeah. like i mean when you're 20 i was so mad yeah like i'm 44 now like i'm just not that mad anymore yeah like and it's it's great. I mean, I love that there's more whimsy and there's more joy in like a, a status quo. Uh, but sometimes I can look at somebody and see that fire in their eyes. And I remember that fire and I, I kind of miss it sometimes. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, that's true. And I also looked at it and go, my God, there were, there were forties and fifty something men looking at me oh, yeah. when I was bouncing up and down like a idiot on in yep. the mission and they were just going, oh, remember those days? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Yeah. And it was like, but at the time, it was just like, no, I know everything. Get the fuck out of my way. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, you know, it's, it's funny because that sort of passion is really purposeful. It's really useful. Like, I made, I made a ton of art in my 20s. I didn't have, like, the technique skill. Like, I think that's the trade-off. Like, technique-wise, I'm a better writer. But sometimes I do miss that that fury of youth. Yeah. Um, I mean, music, movies, books, fine art. I mean, I think I think we need that 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 fury. It could be a really useful ingredient, so long as we can channel it into the work and it doesn't just kind of take over and and run our life. Because obviously, that can get very toxic very quickly. And I think it, I think if we don't go through that stage in our twenties, we're forever. There's there's people that never do. There's people that are like right. they're even keel, you know. And then it's and it kind of blows my mind. And what where did all where does all of that go? What did they do with it? You know, it goes to their uh, Don Draper midlife crises. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Eventually, I mean, you have to go through that. Yeah. Right? You ain't coming in. Maybe some people do it in their teenage years or their twenties, and then you know, some people do it in later in life. Yeah, that must be fun too. I don't know. I had to do it a little because because um, well, I got divorced when I was thirty-eight. Okay. And when I got married, I was a virgin because I was still in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, I was twenty-five-year-old right. virgin, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, I can have sex with somebody else? I don't get this. It kind yeah. of blew my mind. And so did my take, friend, like, did you take like a grace period before, like to figure out what that was going to mean to you before you started having casual sex? Um, I, well, to be totally honest, I was so heartbroken that I, I, I couldn't get an erection. There was, there was no, there was no possibility. That decision of, I, didn't even, for I, you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know if it was going to work anymore. <laughs> it's just like, I'm like, I think it died. Does right. it die when you get divorced? Does right. it die? No, I didn't read the fine print on the divorce paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. That's on page 38 of the uh, legal document. <laughs> we'll take your testosterone and we'll take any, uh, yeah. no. Here you go. So, so then when I finally was able to, when I was like, oh, I think, you know, I think my body's like reacting again. And then I did have the first person I had, it was, it was a casual thing and I never had done it in my life. And I met her at the 3300 Club in the in Bernal Heights. Oh yeah, I know the 3300 Club. So I was I was sitting there. I just seen a band, uh, probably at the Knockout of El Rio. Yeah. And I went up there, and she, uh, I was sitting next to her, and we were talking. And then she goes, "Do you want to come back to where I'm staying?" And she was leaving for New York the next morning. She goes, "Do you yeah. want to come back to where I'm staying and um, smoke some pot?" I'm like, "I don't smoke pot because I never really smoked pot, so I didn't know what it would do to me." And uh, so I just said, "Well, I, I'll come watch you or whatever." And then all of a sudden it was, oh, oh, what's happening? 
oh, this better work, man. Come on. Yeah, yeah. No, it actually, it was leading the way. It was great. It was like, dude, we're you know, the, the downstairs knew before I did. It's like, we're doing yeah. this, right? We're doing this, right? Well, I would imagine, too, that in a weird way, it was sort of um, made it more of a place of asylum knowing that she was leaving the next day, right? Because it was like a kind of a one-off. Well, no pressure. It, yeah, that was intriguing. I think that was... I think that was more on her end because you know, you know how it is where it's just like, there's women that just, they're like, after that, I tried to have one night stands. I became friends with everyone that I, that I tried to have one night stand with. Cause I just, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like looking through the, I, I'm, I wake up in the morning. I'm like, what do you want for breakfast? Should we go antique shopping? And they look sure, at me and they're like, get out. I got things to do. <laughs> It's like, oh, 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 it was, it's a sex thing. I made a really good frittata. Are you sure you don't want me to stay? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, so it was cool. And then afterward, I told her, I said, hey, you're the second person I've ever had sex with. Oh, and wow. I know we're not going to, you know, I know, I know we're not going to meet again and we're not going to hang out again, but I just want to let you know, because it's really important. Like for me, it's an important day in my life. That? I'm sorry? What did she say to that? She was just like her whole, she was, it was like, it was like, she was so, uh, it was almost like she was in, she had this love look on her face oh, and wow. we were just like cuddled and we hung out until like <laughs> six in the morning and it was just, we had a great kiss goodbye and, and that was it. But I, I really wanted her to know that it was, even though it's what, what it was, what it was, it was important. Sure. Yeah. And I can't remember her name now. <laughs> have you ever written an essay? Have you ever written an essay about that? No, I need to. That, that, that sounds like a really interesting essay. I know. What am I doing? I, I, I'm blowing it on here. So Romance at the 3300 Club. Anything's possible. <laughs> I used to go there because so I, I used to live right around the corner. Yeah. So I would, and um, there was a bartender there. She would uh, she always gave me like triples, you know. Nice. <laughs> I don't know how I walked in those years. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. That was my secret. Cocaine. Yeah. That was my secret. <laughs> oh yeah, I tried that. I've, I've tried it. I've tried cocaine twice, and I just can't. Um, it's not. Um, it's not a thing for me. Not for you. No. Yeah. It's. I, it makes no sense. I don't. I don't I, for me, it was more a matter of like, I would like to drink for seven or eight more hours. How am I going to make that happen without losing consciousness? Yes. You know. So then, all of a sudden, they became splendid bedfellows to help me on my journey <laughs> <laughs> see that makes sense because all i wanted to i was like why do i want to keep drinking i just want to go to sleep yeah that was uh i had a tattoo artist one time we said something similar she, her name was mandy and she goes um <clears throat> we know every time i do heroin i clean the house and when i take cocaine i take a nap it doesn't make any sense but you know every system you know metabolizes all that stuff differently yeah i wish i could metabolize chocolate and pizza differently God, wouldn't that be nice? Right in the six-pack abs. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I have to have more chocolate and pizza because you don't understand. I got an underwear model shoot tomorrow. And it's delicious. <laughs> and I'm going to be ripped at the same time? Wow. <laughs> what, what kind of world would it be if that was the case? Xanadu? I know. Yeah. Maybe that's a maybe that's a story there. Maybe that's a sci-fi fantasy. The recipe, please let me know. I would like to get on the ground floor there. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be a tech company. There'll be some. Uh, there'll be some tech involved. You'll have to put this needle in your eyeball and Absolutely. inject a little something every morning. But you know, it's going to hurt my health. You look that, great. Though. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, needles are tricky because the needles, you know, are an interesting part of the book too. Whereas be like, you know, I had been off needles for seven years. Um, and then when I had the heart surgery, I had to do opiates for the procedure. Right. So, like it was this weird moment where, you know, in, in like, NA communities, they call it a free lapse. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're relapsing, but you're supposed to relapse. So when I got, when I woke up from the surgery, you know, I should have been like rolling around in the mud and praising Gaia that I was still alive. Um, but all I wanted to do was get high. Yeah. But I didn't want to see my wife, my kid. I didn't want to see any of them. I just wanted to check myself into some tenderloin motel and debase myself gloriously. So it was really interesting when you come to those moments in life where the thing I had to do to save my life was absolutely risking my life. Because I worked so hard to get clean and try to rebuild some stuff. Um, and then to, to have the doctor of all absurd people be like, you got to do opiates. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. I guess I'm going to do that now. Right. And it was just fentanyl. I got a good uh, memoirist friend named Rob Roberge. Uh, oh, yeah. Fucking hysterical. Yeah. And Rob calls a uh, fentanyl the polyester pants of the opiate family. <laughs> <laughs> if you've never read Rob's memoir, Liar. It's so good. It's, uh, it's amazing. He's such a good writer. I love him. I, I, I used to bring that into my uh, novel writing classes because um, he writes it in second person. I was, yep. like, I was like, here is your here's a great second person narrative yeah if you want if you do you ever read a pat dewitt's first novel ablusions yeah yeah i think i have it here and i think That's i read second, it years ago it's all second person told from a hollywood barbacks perspective has got hep c um it's such twisted deranged fun yeah and then i and then i saw what he looked like i got to meet him and i'm just like you're so much yeah i thought you were going to be deranged oh no <laughs> you're a, pat's a good yes pat's a good buddy of mine yeah uh, he's just like that's another thing i love about writing books too is it's just like this degenerate network you know like we can just like sniff each other out uh -huh. <laughs> like hey robert hey dewitt like we can just tell like who your people are right from the rip you know yeah exactly that's that's the good fun of it that's what I tell. That's why I always tell my students too. It's just like you're going to join a community. It's going to be. It's going to be. It's going to be work. It's going to be the worst decision you've ever made in your life monetarily. But <laughs> it's it's the only place to be. It is, and you know, I was just had a. I'm teaching a dialogue class at Stanford right now, and right before talking to you, we had our our office hour, um, and we were talking about you know the importance of of community and importance of readers, and the idea if you're, if it's just you editing with your c drive like that becomes a very lonely thing you know but all of a sudden if you kind of get this digital dopamine of like being around you know either analog way or digitally on computer with with the pandemic of it all just to know that other people out there are advocating for your art and are excited for you to finish what's next i mean that's the sort of gasoline that you know sends me back to the computer um, I'm such a binge writer anyways, like I'm, I'm, like a, I'm a nocturnal guy, so I kind of mm. write from midnight till about five. I'm um, just like swigging espresso, listening to the cramps at an obscene decibel level. I wouldn't recommend, I'm not certainly recommending that way to generate content, um, but it's, it's what I love to do. It's like a total flow state. In the middle of the night, there's no text, there's no emails, no one's calling me. It's so quiet. And I do it in such a way, Tony, that every light in the house is off except the computer. So the only illumination in the entire house is the work. 
And it's just like the perfect way to just like say to the, to look your art in the eyes and be like, you matter to me. You, yeah. You're important. And I'm going to show up and I'm going to show up and I'm going to show up and tell you as beautiful as I can make you. And that nighttime there's, there's less electronic like impulses in the oh, air. Yeah. It's just, the, the, everything comes down. I interviewed, um, Oh my God, what's his name? He was the lead singer of the Plimsolls. His first name's Peter. I can't remember his last name is. No, yeah. He says he, he, he writes at night too. He composes all this stuff in the middle of the night, dead of night. Really helpful. No yeah. one, no one's, you know, pestering me asking for favors or, you know, no one's like, let's go climb a tree. And like, I love climbing trees, but I also like scribbling sorted stories as well. And not being interrupted. We can't be interrupted. And not being interrupted. Yeah. If anything, you get that, like the good stuff is when like, I can't, I forget to eat. You know, like I'll look up and suddenly like I'm all like sweaty and tousled and be like, okay, I should go put some protein in my system yeah. right now. <laughs> Does that happen to you too? That you, you get so in the zone that you forget to take care of yourself? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a constant narrative where it's just like, <laughs> I, I, it's just like, it's almost like I feel like this huge, like just diabetic sugar crash. I'm not diabetic or hypoglycemic, but there's just this point where the body's like, Oh no, I can't give you anything else unless you go put right. something in me. And I'm like, oh my God, I haven't eaten since eight in the morning. I totally right. forgot. <laughs> that's when that's when you know you're doing something right. Absolutely. That's the good stuff. I mean, there's something that the alchemy of figuring out how to empower your unconscious, turn off the niggling voice of the inner editor, or the conscious mind. You're not good enough. Who the give who the hell is gonna ever give a fuck about your art? Like those voices, getting, I don't think we can ever turn them off. But I think we can turn their volume down to like a tolerable whisper. Yeah. Um, and then when I'm in the zone, like I don't hear that voice at all. It's great. Yeah. And the, I mean, obviously the cramps help. Let's be honest with that. <laughs> what don't the cramps help? <laughs> I know. Oh my God. Such a good band. Yeah. Joshua, thanks so much for coming on the show. Tony, I love talking shop with you. This has been a blast. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it and cut that was great <laughs> you did it yeah oh man i love talking with you tony this is good joshua more on drinks with tony check out his new book model citizen next week on the show we have gabriel valentine discussing his new graphic novel digital wizards of doom keep writing keep loving keep on keeping on i'll see you next wednesday <laughs>